Welcome to Season 8 of Sashimi. For Episode 8, I interviewed Scott Bichak of Norwest Venture Partners. At Norwest, Scott focuses on investment opportunities in enterprise SaaS across all stages. We discussed his experience as a startup founder and his move to VC, the latest market trends, Scott's investment process, as well as qualitative and quantitative characteristics of companies he likes to invest in. We also spoke about the director Oliver Stone, Walt Disney Studios, and Interscope Records. If you're curious what this has to do with Scott, listen to the end. Enjoy. Scott, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about SaaS startups, venture capital, and uh, investments in general. But before we start, why don't you say a few words about yourself and Northwest Venture Partners? So, you know, I've been with Northwest for a little over four years, um, partner on our enterprise investment team. Um, My background is more on the operating and uh, entrepreneurial side. So I was at Salesforce uh, for just under seven years prior to Northwest, and I ended up uh, running the product organization for a business we called the Service Cloud. Um, And uh, that business was the second product line for Salesforce, uh, second to the core CRM product. And I think it was about uh, two and a half billion of ARR uh, when I left uh, the company. So it was quite a ride. Um, We we broke a lot of things along the way. We uh, tried some things that that worked out okay, uh, but uh, learned a heck of a lot and just had this opportunity to understand what it meant to build enterprise software at just tremendous speed and scale. Um, and there's you know no better mentors than the the founders you know Mark Benioff and Parker Harris at Salesforce. And prior to that, it was a 15 year run as an entrepreneur, so uh, co-founding, uh, building, and selling some companies. The last two were enterprise SaaS companies. So kind of got got the bug in me to uh, do most of what I do in, in the cloud and and see where where we could push things over time. Why did you decide to join a venture capital firm after your background as an operator? Yeah. So one of the things I learned along the way is that you tend to learn more when you make mistakes and, uh, you know, hit the wall and then, you know, um, look back and wonder, you know, why didn't that work? And so one of my startups um, was complete disaster. We tried a lot of creative ways to build that business, to go to market, to scale it. And many of those things just didn't work uh, for one reason or another. And I look back on that and I realize, wow, those were patterns that you can carry forward in so many different ways. And after joining Salesforce and spending time there um, and just uh, you know watching the way that that organization built and rebuilt itself every quarter in order to, to, to go, you know, almost zero to two and a half billion of ARR in, in seven years, which is, you know, just it, when you even say the words, it seems impossible. Um, but the magic is just in the fact that companies must be able to throw away and start over uh, whatever their business plan was or whatever their assumptions were. And so all, along the way, I said to myself, um, I had raised a lot of venture capital myself, um, and I had experienced some really, really amazing investors. And those who, you know, I'd say they represented a relatively small percentage, but they were investors who had experience uh, either on the operating side or they were just materially helpful. They were would lean in and offer me real-world advice. Scott, be careful when you make this decision. Instead of going that direction, consider this option instead. Or Scott, rather than hiring this person to run this important function, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that I know is just world-class. I was in my 20s and uh, early 30s uh, during most of those companies. I thought one day, maybe I'll have enough experience and I'll have uh, you know made enough mistakes and 
and had enough success along the way that I could share those things with other companies. So one thought was if I ever left Salesforce, maybe I'll start another company. But then, uh, you know, I was, I was in my early 40s at the time and I thought, wow, what an opportunity this could be. Um, Norwest was always one of my favorite uh, venture firms. Just the culture there is one of, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, again, most of the partnership have run companies of their own or founded companies of their own. So they're very empathetic to the idea of founding and how hard it is to build businesses. And so I said to myself, okay, well, if I really want to share and I really want to um, teach and just be a, a great mentor and a, and a great advisor and, and source of guidance for entrepreneurs building great companies, maybe I could do it better or more broadly over a portfolio. And and just looking at investing and the nature of being on so many boards after you lead uh, significant investments, that's exactly where you end up. And you, so you end up in a situation where if that's the type of investor that you want to be, you can be very helpful. And Norwest invented, or at least they, I believe they coined this term, the invited guest. And so as investors, uh, we're the last folks who want to, you know, push our way in and, and try to yeah, tell the management team how to run their company. But in a lot of cases, and especially when I was an entrepreneur, I remember I, I was always looking for advice. You know, you never know. You never have all the answers. And so for me to be invited into a product strategy session or into a recruiting opportunity or just being able to really kind of share some of my experiences across a broad number of companies, not just those that I invested in, but you know, we're partnership. So I often uh, get asked to come in and help other companies that other partners um, have led the investments in and sit on the board. So I just thought it'd be a good platform to share that type of experience. You joined Norwest at a time when this rise of SaaS over the five years was quite remarkable, right? Then COVID hit. What would you say COVID did to the SaaS startups? Did it decrease the number of new companies, increase the numbers? What's the overall observation? It was a moving target is what I found. Around March, in at least in North America, there was a dramatic slowdown in the deployment of capital into new investments. I would say March, April, and May were very challenging months because none of us knew how long the pandemic was going to last. None of us knew the impact that it would have to these recurring revenue subscription-based software service businesses. And so we sort of played a little bit of wait and see. Um, I did do one deal during that time, but it was a very special company with some amazing founders that I had known for almost a decade. Um, so for me, it was less of a risk, but I know a lot of firms just sort of hit the pause button for those three months. And then somewhere around the June or July timeframe, I think it became a little bit more clear that these recurring revenue businesses, particularly enterprise SaaS businesses, a lot of them experienced tailwinds because they were, in a lot of cases, the companies that were helping those customers, those end customers, continue growing their businesses. Because there's, you know, it could be sales, SaaS technology, it could be MarTech, could be, you know, revenue management, back office, um, you know, automation became a huge theme. Uh, you know, now that we're, we've fully ramped up with AI, machine learning, and, you know, ways to predict um, what the next best 
action is to, so that we become more efficient and more productive companies. So those were the types of things, uh, types of topics that were top of mind for buyers during the pandemic, because no one knew when we were going to go back to the office. Uh, a lot of hiring was frozen with a lot of companies, but they still needed to grow and they still needed to conduct business. So how, what did they look to? They looked to these types of SaaS businesses that they could subscribe to. Potentially, if it didn't work, they could get out of it. So it felt very safe from that perspective. But in many cases, uh, SaaS businesses are the companies that actually helped many, many companies that were in every industry imaginable make it through the pandemic. That was the experience, I think, for most of 2020. Now, there was also a side effect, though. One of the side effects was that the number of new companies that were being formed slowed down dramatically. And that was interesting because it, and it's very logical when you think about it. If I'm you know, a smart executive or engineer or whoever at Facebook or Apple or Google or Salesforce or any of these big companies, and I'm thinking about leaving because I want to be a founder, you know, I've got a great idea, I'm going to go found this company, but you're right in the middle of a global pandemic you're going to pause and you're going to say to yourself, hmm, maybe now is not the best time to go out there. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to raise capital. I kind of like the stability of my job right now. I got a family and let's kind of wait this out. And so the number of new companies formed in 2020 was significantly less than what it otherwise would have been had the pandemic not been here. And so we saw fewer brand new companies. So the number of new seed deals, high quality seed deals decreased uh, in 2020. That was our experience anyway. And now we're in 2021 and the exact opposite is happening. I think now that the vaccines are getting out, cities are opening. Of course, there's certain regions of the world that are still in terrible shape. Uh, God bless them. I mean, I, we, we have uh, international companies that have some regions that are doing remarkably well and some that are still behind. But I think we all see the light at the end of the tunnel here. And I think that there's a lot of optimism right now. And so a lot of those, those employees of the big companies are finally leaving. And they're, they're deciding to start these companies. And I've never seen so many new companies being formed in such a short period of time. There's so much pent-up energy around building new businesses. So it's, it's actually a really exciting time to be an investor. It's also a very competitive time to be an investor. So with competition probably comes the valuation as well. Did you see dramatic increase in valuation or not necessarily? In 2021... I would say even beginning at the end of 2020, we started to see valuation uh, multiples start to rise. And the private markets tend to follow the public markets. So you look at, you know, comps could be, if you're in HR tech, you look at Workday and you look at SAP success factors, you look at, com at companies like this, and you look at what kind of multiples they're getting on their revenue to market cap. And then we try to estimate, well, you know, I think because the market rebounded faster than we thought, and SaaS companies in general were blowing their quarters away. So many companies that I talked to not only beat their COVID plan, meaning the, the plan that they came up with to sort of reduce their burn uh, during 2020, but they beat their pre-COVID plan. And so now investors, by the way, who held back for you know three to six months, but have a ton of dry powder to deploy... Now they're just uh, hungry. It's just incredible how aggressive 
the investment market is right now, it's a free market. So it's supply and demand, right? There are only so many great deals to be had. There's a lot of free capital in the venture market right now. And so it is, it's driving up valuations. There's no question about it. And walk me through your investment process from the very beginning. Let's just uh, start with the sourcing of your original deal. How do you go about it? One of the things that we always try to think about is we like to try to understand not only a market, but trends. It could be secular trends. They could be trends that are related to a very uh, specific technology. It could be something more sociological. Um, one of the trends that I've been noticing has to do with customer engagement and customer experience and the use of data in a privacy-first way to create more personal and meaningful relationships between brands and consumers. And we've been talking about one-to-one -one marketing for decades, but it, it hasn't really ever been possible until recently because now we have not only the, the data stores at reasonable cost, but we have the compute and with the data science and all of the data science, uh, data scientists who are graduating over the last uh, two to three years, we've got so much great talent out there to build some tremendous models. And so it's one of the things that we call the market maps. And I think a lot of other firms also use that same term where we'll say, okay, let's, let's Let's try to study something. We studied the e-commerce platform market um, because there's a lot of players out there. There's legacy players from you know 20, 25 years ago, like ATG and Hybris and IBM Commerce Server and all that good stuff. More recent companies in the last 10 to 12 years, like Shopify and others. And, and we put all of these into a map and try to understand where things are going. What would Shopify really did do a great job of defining from, you know, say 2009 to uh, recent times, what it meant to bring up a digital commerce store in a matter of hours or days rather than months or years, which was a state of the art prior. But there's always a future. There's always a next generation to something big like digital commerce. And so we studied that. And so th the first step that we took there was to create a market map and really understand who all the new players were. And there was a new trend called headless commerce, which I sometimes you know refer to as modular or microservices-based commerce. But it was kind of bringing together the ease of drag and drop to create commerce store, but all the power of development to also create the most rich and just delightful personal experiences for shoppers that you can achieve on some of the, you know, two 2010 era platforms. So that's one of the first steps we go through is trying to figure out, okay, what are those trends? What are the themes that we think are going to be important over the next 10 to 15 years? And then we, when, then we choose one or two companies that we think are going to be the winners. And at that point, we tend to reach out to those companies. We like to talk to as many of them as possible, hopefully all, all of the companies in that universe. And we start to think through, and this is maybe a little bit more of a Norwest uh, philosophy, but we like to think about how we could be helpful. And I know that it's really common in the in the venture industry. Venture capitalists <laughs> love to say, "Hey, you know, call me. How can I be helpful? You know, if let me." It's like the most common like closing line to an email, especially if you turn them down. But we do this on upfront, and we do it because we, again, as former operators, one of the reasons why I even do what I do is because I love getting involved. And so, if a management team 
wants our help, I'm happy to spend you know a day on a product strategy session or working with them closely to help find in my network and our expanded partner network at Norwest great C-level or, or VP-level execs um, to source for the company. Finding new customers or design partners. I mean, these are things that really get me out of bed in the morning. So right after doing the market map, that's the sourcing piece and figuring out who's who, then we start to map to what are our strengths. My personal strength as a partner, if I join a board of a company, I know I want to hit the ground running. and I, w- I know I want to have, I want every one of the CEOs and founders that I invest in to be a great reference and to feel and to believe that I materially help them grow their business faster. So that's step one. Step two. Next, you start to think about, okay, what's this worth? What's the valuation going to look like? How are we going to work out a deal? What kind of deal makes the most sense here? And sometimes if you're in a auction process with a bunch of other great firms and there's a lot of other great firms out there, sometimes you got to, and you don't want to pay the highest price. You want it to be a win-win on both sides. You have to demonstrate exceptional value way beyond just the, hey, you got our capital. You got me on your board. Like to, I have to actually be able to deliver some some very tangible value. And that could come in the form of, hey, I'm going to bring you these five customers. And I'm going to also introduce you. You're looking for a, a CRO. I've got a great CRO I've been working with for the last 10 years. I'd love to introduce you. And maybe that works out. So those are the types of things that we do. And on valuation, I think you never want to have a, a lopsided type of deal. I think everybody needs to feel great about any deal that you do. So it's oftentimes, you know, especially in markets like this, where it's so competitive and valuations are just, you know, astronomically high, sometimes we never get there. And I think that's normal. I think uh, a lot of investors would say the same. But in other cases, we're just so, so, so passionate about this particular company that we're willing to pay a value that doesn't necessarily mathematically uh, you, you can't arrive at it by taking a number of like revenue and multiplying by some multiple. And so it doesn't always work quite that way quantitatively. And then, uh, you know, after, you know, if, assuming that the deal works out, I love to sketch out a plan for how do, how are we going to work together? I always like to treat myself and I like my CEOs and founding teams to treat me like an employee not a board member, but an employee. So just the same as you might pick up the phone and call your head of product and say, hey, you know what? I had, I was dreaming about this product idea last This is a CEO talking. He says, I've been thinking about this product idea. And what, what do you think? You know, is, is this possible? Is there a market here? Have you heard customers talking about the need for this? That's the type of thing that I love getting involved with. And I, I think not all board members would derive the same amount of personal satisfaction from those types of interactions, but I do. And um, if you need help uh, finding a new office space, you know, pick up some couches and chairs and help move them from one place to another. You know, <laughs> as a former founder myself, I wore a lot of hats as a as a founding CEO. I found myself as the office janitor. I've uh, swept the floors and cleaned the toilets before. Um, so there's nothing, uh, nothing below me on, uh, from that point of view. What are some qualitative and quantitative characteristics of particular business that you're looking for? On the qualitative side of things, I write about this sometimes. I think culture and quality of leadership is so important. 
I think, especially in the earlier stages, um, and this isn't really profound. I think a lot of investors would say, hey, you know what? The founders are the most important thing in early stage investing. But I think assuming, yes, you found some great founders, they have some domain expertise, they've got the energy, they got the fire in the belly, they got the passion, um, and they've got a great plan for how to do it. They might not have built the product yet, but all those things are, are all lined up. The next aspect that I really look for is what kind of company are you going to build? What kind of culture is it going to be? Are you the type of leadership team who's going to be extremely transparent? How are you going to hire? What kind of people are you going to hire? If you came from another big company, if you came from Google or Amazon or Facebook or wherever, are you going to bring that culture to your company or are you going to develop your own culture? In other words, what's your employee NPS going to be like? two years from now? Are people going to want to love working for your company? Are you going to somehow have this magic that just draws people and gets some employees emotionally connected to the mission of what you're building? That's a little bit harder to detect, but I think when you see it, you know it. You know, it's a very special, there was a, a company that I co-invested, uh, was a board observer on uh, called Galvanize, which recently sold um, to Diligent for a billion dollars. And I'll tell you, that was one of those special companies where the second I met them, and this was several years ago, I just knew that they had a special culture. They had bought this vintage car, you know, from, I was like 40 years old, and they painted it purple, just like the, the color of their, their logo. And that was the car and they would loan it out to any one of their 400 employees who wanted to drive it. And it was just this magnificent thing. <laughs> the CEO, she was incredible. She said, if you hit your number sales organization for this year, I am going to get a grappling hook and rappel off this 41 story building in a spider woman outfit. <laughs> and I'm going to raise money for charity. <laughs> And I know these are kind of just one-off little funny examples, but it's that type of just exuberance and just passion and connectivity and just willingness to do whatever it takes to make that working experience something truly, truly special. Because let's face it, we're spending eight hours, maybe more of our day, five days a week doing what we do. That's a lot of our lifetime. Right. I would love to think that every company that we're involved with and that we invest in is creating that special moment where every employee looks back and says, that was the best work of my life. That was the best experience and the best culture, because that's that ultimately does produce better work and better results. What about some uh, quantitative metrics? You know, I think a lot of investors focus really heavily on things like SaaS metrics. You know, so they'll look at LTV to CAC, they'll look at, you know, uh, your gross margins, and they'll look at, you know, how fast you're growing. And those are all really important. But I think that there's no exact answer to any of that because every company is different. There may be a situation, for example, where a company has a gross margin, it's a SaaS company that has a gross margin in the 30% range, which would be considered worst of class. But the reason is because in order to land their first large customers, they decided that they wanted to overemphasize customer success to ensure that those customers were successful 
no matter what, because they needed them to be references. And maybe that took over a year to do that, but it was all part of the plan. It was baked into the plan. So there's nothing wrong with having a company where all the metrics don't look exactly the way that you would expect. Maybe their gross retention is 70%, but their net retention is 130%, right? And so you say, well, hmm, I guess you're churning a lot of customers, but the customers who stay with you really like you a lot and they expand and they buy more. Uh, so let's let's dig into that. That's just because your gross retention wasn't as high as you'd like. That doesn't mean that you got to turn the other way and, and run. <laughs> it's There's just every company's situation is unique. So when I meet new founders for the first time, I'm not the investor who right off the bat asks for, you know, show me your dashboard of all your metrics. The first thing I want to understand is, how are you fundamentally going to change the world? We might not solve world hunger and we might not cure cancer, but how are we going to make some large group of people's lives better? And if I get that feeling, you know, that, that tingling down my spine when they say, this is how it's been done, but we think about things completely differently, we're going to approach it in this new way. It's going to delight every one of our customers and just shock and surprise them in positive ways. That gets me excited right off the bat. Then we can we could talk about what that translates to. What is your P&L going to look like? How much is it going to cost? Uh, what percentage of your budget is going to be allocated to sales and marketing versus R&D? You know, if you're spending 40% on R&D, which would be very high, well, why are you doing that and for how long? So again, there's no exact answer for every single company. It's, it's very situational and it's very uh, company specific. You mentioned Govonize which obviously uh, you already exited, I believe, right? But when you think of other startups, when you invest in them, what's your typical whole target? And what do you think is typical exit? Is it PE firm? Is it strategic IPO? Well, if you're investing in early stage venture companies, uh, seed stage A or B, something like that, these days, it's not uncommon to have a company uh, continue to build for seven to nine years uh, before they exit. Um, I think the, the latest data is that out of the exits that occur, if there's 20 of them, uh, 19 will be M&A and one will be IPO. Now, I think that with SPACs, uh, which may be a flash in the pan, we'll see, um, I think that may have skewed a little bit more toward a public market and with direct listings. But generally speaking, most companies who do exit will exit via M&A. There's nothing particularly wrong with exiting to PE, uh, particularly if the PE firm also has some other companies that are extremely complementary. You always want to do that mental math of, okay, is this going to be a one plus one equals three? Or in case there's a few different companies they want to roll up, you know, is it one plus one plus one equals five or six? If you can convince yourself that that's the case, sometimes that's actually a great route to go. I tend to think though, that in today's world, because there's so many, there was so much digital transformation happening right now, and so many ways that business processes are being digitized and automated, that strategic acquisitions tend to be really interesting for me. I like to think through the two sides of it. I like to think about the product and technology integration. So how do we create something that's going to be so much better when you combine these two products together that 
you know, guys like you and me who use it, whether we're shopping online or whether we're using any sort of service, we're trying to call a car, all of a sudden now these, you know, the service itself becomes so much better because we combine them. And then the other side of it, which is combining the two companies. So, you know, how do these organizations come together? Do they have a similar culture? Do they see things the same way? Maybe one is in a different geography and it expands the geographic footprint of the larger combined company. And that could be a really good thing, providing access to new markets for the other company. So that's kind of, those are some of the things that we, that we think about. You're on the board, I believe, on about 10 companies, maybe even more. Do you notice some common mistakes this company make at early stages in particular? Well, there's an infinite number of mistakes that companies can make. Um, I know I've personally made them, a lot of them myself. You know, I think one of the, one of the common things, so, so the earlier you go, the more I think fundamental or catastrophic bad decisions can be because in the earliest days of creating a business, you're laying the foundation and you're setting both culture, you're building the foundations of your product that are going to be built upon over time. You're kind of setting forth all of the processes, you're building the processes and that will determine how efficient or how productive your company is over time. The number one thing that I think early stage companies make a mistake is not focusing enough on recruiting quality people. I haven't met anyone yet who thinks that recruiting is the most fun thing they do. It's not, it's just generally not like we love building things, we love building companies and products and all this. Stuff. Recruiting is a lot of work and it takes so many hours. But the, the advice I usually give is your first 50 employees have to be A players, if not A plus players. And it's so important because those first 50 are going to be the next managers who hire the next 50 and the next 100 and the next 200. I've said this before in other podcasts, but A players tend to hire A players. And every once in a while, you make a mistake, you get a B player in there, you know, and then those B players tend to hire B players and accidentally they'll hire a C player from time to time. And so you see, you see the pattern where that, where that leads. So I think focusing on recruiting and over indexing on recruiting, when I ask a, a founding CEO in the early days, where do you spend most of your time? Like how do you, if you had your you know, pie chart and you could kind of chop it up, where would your time be? And if they tell me that they're spending any less than uh, 25 to 40% of their time recruiting, then they're underinvesting. That's just a fact. In some cases, they tell me they're spending 50% of their time recruiting, and I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. On a no-name basis, have you been part of startup, particularly in SaaS, that went south? And if you have, what exactly went wrong, and how did you navigate through that? I think we've all been part of organizations that haven't worked out. I mean, that's that's life, right? Not everything is going to work out perfectly right. Otherwise, uh, we, it would be a very interesting uh, capital market that we'd be in. <laughs> and everybody's selling everything to everybody and kind of business is never going out of business. I think there are a lot of reasons why things don't work out. In fact, there's more reasons why companies won't work than there are that companies will work. One of the key reasons that I've seen companies fail um, that I've been involved with. This is a little bit, little vague, but it ties back to ego. And it ties back to the notion that we know, or the CEO, or the, or the founders, they think they know everything that they need to know. And I don't care if you've 
exited two or three companies already and you're on your fourth one. I don't care if you're a fresh grad uh, out of school and you're just a smart kid and you, you know, you're doing it for the first time. Nobody has all the answers. And every company is a whole new set of challenges and a whole new set of decisions that need to be made. And in the early days, like I said, there's forks in the road where if you choose the right lane and you should have chosen the left lane, but sometimes you can't back out. Like the car, there's no reverse on that car. And so you have to continue down that right lane. And that may ultimately mean the difference between, you know, building a company that's worth 100x more than if you had gone down the left lane. Um, and so the way to avoid making the wrong lane change is by surrounding yourself with smart people who know things that you don't know. And having that humility and having the self-awareness and uh, the EQ to recognize that none of us know everything there is to know about building a company, and even if it's your company, and knowing that surrounding yourself with other smart people and giving them a piece of your company to bring them into the family and make them feel ownership and drive to, to help you, that sort of, it's not scaffolding, it's, it's really the, the bones of the, of the business, you know, early on. That's so important. Because and the willingness to listen and be very open minded, because, again, in the early days, we're all trying to figure out, well, which market are we going to go after? How much do we invest in building this product? Are we going to invest six months to get our MVP and go to market or should we build the ultimate product and spend a year to get there? I mean, these are big, huge decisions, right? Do we sell through the channel? Are we going to sell? Are we going to build a direct sales team? These are massive decisions. And one person rarely makes all the right decisions. That's usually the reason, or it's a big reason why I've seen companies fail. It's because there's single points of failure where the CEO just says, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And half the team is, is kind of scratching their heads saying, why would he or she think that that's the right way to go? But they do it anyway, because the CEO said so. And sure enough, they could have taken more input and may probably made a better decision. You obviously receive a lot of inbound interest from founders who want to raise money. What would be your advice to these founders, how to approach the fundraising? I was just asked this question yesterday, and my best advice to founders when you're raising, especially if it's inbound, is, first of all, it's always nice to be loved. When you get somebody inbound that says, hey, I love what you're doing. I want to put my money where my mouth is and I want to write you a nice big fat check. There's no better feeling than getting that type of validation because being a founding CEO is a very lonely, lonely job. And when somebody comes along and validates that with an offer, it's just, it's a great feeling. But my best advice is to take your time, be patient and think very carefully about what partner you want to work with. Think of it almost like a marriage, because if you're going to take, you know, say a seed round or a, a round, those investors are likely going to be working with you in some capacity for the next seven to nine, maybe more years. That's a long relationship. And you've got to believe in your heart that they're going to be helpful they're going to be humble. They're going to be open. They're going to be a great partner. And they're really going to, you know, you're going to work well together. So somebody once said, well, capital's capital. And I completely disagree, especially today 
where there's so much capital available. A great entrepreneur who has a fantastic idea, has a good background and doing all the things that good entrepreneurs do, you're going to have a choice. Again, you have to be patient sometimes because the early rounds don't always come together in, you know, a day or two. Sometimes it takes a while because uh, oftentimes it's just a business plan on a piece of paper and it's your own reputation. I have a bonus question for you. In the past, you composed music for people like Oliver Stone, for Disney and for Interscope. I'm guessing you know Jimmy Levine and all the Eminem and these guys. <laughs> How did that help you in your current role, if at all? Well, it, <laughs> Thanks for for bringing that up. Uh, most people don't don't know that necessarily, but I'm uh, happy to talk about it. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. I started playing piano when I was five years old, and you know I learned how to play some jazz and paid my way through uh, undergrad partially by playing in a pretty lousy piano bar. And I was never the greatest piano player. I'll be honest, I was never really that the greatest piano player, but I could fake it. Uh, pretty good. And I sometimes think that being a, a great entrepreneur, you got to fake it constantly because we never know. As a, as a founder, you never know all the answers. You just don't. But when you stand up in front of a, a group of partners in a venture pitch, you're expected to know everything. And it's actually okay to say, I don't know, but some things you should know. You should at least have an opinion about. And so improvisation when you're playing jazz is all about feeling that song at that moment, looking at the audience, interacting with the other musicians in the band, and making it up right there in real time, and trying to make it sound as good as you can possibly make it. And so I always view that music improvisation is very similar to pitching as a founder. It's not just pitching to investors, but it's also pitching to customers. Customers will always ask you for things that your product doesn't do. Obviously, integrity is incredibly important, but there's a way to say, yes, we don't have that capability today, but here's how we're thinking about that in the future. There's ways to cast that. And I think music is a mathematical exercise, at least the way that my brain always thought about it was I'm thinking about chords and scales and, and then composition. So the, the work we did for Oliver Stone for HBO, for example, it was a, a movie called Looking for Fidel, The Life of, of Fidel Castro. And, you know, we had to score some songs that would be in these incredibly intense uh, war footage that were real footage from actual conflict. And you have to put your brain in that place and you have to compose it as though you're feeling that moment. And so I would say that the emotional connection to music and to video and to, you know, creating a, an entire soundscape and in creating an entire story, uh, which is what music really is, you know, whether it's a three-minute pop song or whether it's a, you know, a 20-minute orchestral piece, it's telling a story. There's always an arc. And in the same way, when we're reverse pitching. I, I often pitch Norwest to entrepreneurs. I want to, I'm excited about the story of Norwest and why I chose Norwest and why I think it's the best firm in the world. And it's that same arc. It's that same emotional connection. You really want to grab your listener and just and kind of draw them in. And that's some of what connects those two things, I think. Great. Thanks a lot, Scott. Well, thank you.